Hello, my name is John Lees and I come from Glasgow, Scotland. I've always had an interest in urban myths and creepy stories, particularly when they revolve around my local history here in Glasgow. In the promotion of my comic book, Sync, I've talked quite a lot lately about an urban legend that I can remember quite vividly from my childhood back in the early 90s. This story revolved around a group of clowns which supposedly travelled around in a blue transit van around Glasgow and the surrounding areas. And these clowns would supposedly hunt down children and snatch them into the van where they would be killed or eaten or turned into clowns depending on who you asked. Now I could talk a whole lot about this and its impact on me and the origins of the story and I have done already. If you want to hear more about that you can head over to my newsletter at sync.comicstribe.com but I'm not going to talk about that today. What I'm actually going to talk about is an older story which had a much bigger cultural impact and came back around 1954, before I was born. And this was the story of the child vampire hunters of the Southern Necropolis. The Southern Necropolis is a large, well-known cemetery in the Gorbals area of Glasgow. It was established back in 1840, and the idea behind it was that it would be a cemetery accessible to the working class in a way which other cemeteries in the region hadn't been before. Now, our story begins back in 23rd of September 1954. That evening, local police were called to the necropolis because of a suspected disturbance. Now, this in itself wasn't unusual. It was known that local kids would often go to the cemetery and cause trouble messing around or vandalising the gravestones. So police went maybe expecting something like this, but what they got was something else entirely. What they found was a crowd of children patrolling the necropolis. Now this wasn't just a small group, this was hundreds of children, ages ranging from 4 to 14, and they all had the same story, shared with utter conviction. They were hunting vampires. See, two missing local boys had been murdered and eaten by a vampire, according to these kids. All the kids described the Gorbo's vampire, as it came to be known, in the same way. They said he was 7 foot tall, and they had a mouth full of rusty iron teeth. These kids showed up in the necropolis that night armed to fight. They had makeshift stakes, they had knives, some of them brought their dogs with them. But there was a sense of palpable terror. The necropolis is like a maze. All sorts of strange, lost corners, hidden angles, and lots of crypts, lots of hiding places. And there was this overwhelming sense that in this place, a vampire could be lurking in any dark corner waiting to snatch them. So there was a growing sense of panic that the authorities had to address. The police could not disperse this crowd. The kids absolutely believed the vampire was out there. But eventually, as dawn approached, the children began to leave for home. And the police thought this was a strange incident, but one which had been resolved in some fashion was over with. But that wasn't the case. See, the next day, they were all back again, continuing their vigil, and they were back again the day after that. It almost seems like there was a battle of wills going on between the children and the Gorbals vampire. If they kept their watch, perhaps the vampire would not leave the necropolis to feed again, I don't know. But the vast crowd of young vampire hunters did return that third night, and no threat of punishment or appeal to reason could stop them. They were utterly convinced something was out there, and only they could stop it. However, 
after three days, the crowd did disperse and the hysteria was over as suddenly as it began. Why? I don't know. Had the children grown bored after three days of nothing? Or maybe they'd found the vampire and slayed it, heading home with their mission complete. But, as it turns out, the real hysteria would come afterwards. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back to all of our lovely listeners. Hi, I felt bad for only telling you how pretty you are, and so now I feel like my affirmations should be more of meditations, more things that might help you improve your character, things for you to return and reflect upon throughout the week. And so I have today for you an inspirational quote. Okay, inspire me. Be patient. Eventually, all of your enemies will die of natural causes. That makes me feel better. Doesn't it? Okay. (laughs) Being known to all of our listeners, uh, we appreciate you tuning in again. If you could take a moment to go onto iTunes, rate, review, tell your friends about it. Call your grandma. She might be interested in this, and she'd probably like to hear from you. And reach out to us on Twitter, through our email, through the website. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Also, we'd love to hear your urban legends that you grew up with. Yes, and if you have an urban legend to share, you may call the Just a Story Urban Legend Hotline. And that number is 512-222-3375. And we'd also like to quickly remind you about our other podcast and audio drama called Audio Dime Museum. Yes, this season we're taking a look at the mysterious and marvelous history of the circus. So back to the story at hand, we do have a great story brought to us from across the pond. What pond? The big one. The ocean? Yeah. Okay. One of my very favorite people in the whole world contributed our story for this week. It's John Lees. He is a very talented writer from Scotland, and he has written several series that have done incredibly well in the comic world. And if you are into comics, you should definitely check him out. One of my favorite projects of his was And Then Emily Was Gone, which is a five-part miniseries, and it's very scary and he actually made up a set of urban legends for that and created his own mythology so you might want to check it out if you're into this podcast yeah and it's definitely would be considered a horror comic it's scary it's actually scary and the artwork is fantastic by ian laurie so he recently told us about this great story that he grew up hearing and it's about the gorbals vampires So this actually did come about organically, which is kind of rare for us. Normally we pick topics because people will either ask us to cover them or we find them and think they're interesting. John just posted on Twitter that one of his favorite artists had done an illustration of the Gorbals vampire hunt and talked about how he'd grown up hearing the story and we became very interested. Yeah, interested would be taking it lightly. Yeah, we don't just become a little interested in anything, do we? (laughs) Either too much or not at all. That's the motto. So, the Gorbals Vampire Hunt took place in September of 1954 in 
Gorbals, which is an area of Glasgow in Scotland. Gorbals was an area that was really kind of a slum at the time. It was packed with decrepit tenements, and there was a large cemetery called the Southern Necropolis near it. Because that's not scary. Yeah, very gothic. These huge gates to get into it. These thousands and thousands of ancient tombstones. I can only think about the graveyard book when I think of it. Oh, definitely. And so the police were called out because there was a ruckus. A ruckus, you say? I do. Okay. Going on at the cemetery. So they thought there were some kids being bad, causing trouble, maybe vandalizing the place. Doing hood rat things with their friends. Yeah. The police officer, uh, Deep Rose, arrived to find hundreds of children packed into the graveyard. All armed. What? With pin knives, sharpened stakes. So this is Lord of the Flies in the cemetery. Yes. Okay. He kind of freaked out. Okay. Understandably. Yeah. And, and he's like, I'm outnumbered. <laughs> and once he gathered himself, he finally was able to wrangle a few of the kids because they were all marching around and sitting on the walls and keeping guard. And he was like, what is going on? And they informed him that they were hunting a seven foot tall vampire with iron teeth that had been roaming around garbles and had stolen two children and eaten them. It sounds as if someone needed to do something. I mean, one does not simply let a seven-foot-tall vampire roam around and eat children. So, I mean, we've got to go on a hunt for him. Because there must be a vampire around. Because reasons. I mean, they're kids. So there are a few great interviews of some of the kids. Now they're, of course, they're sweet old Scotsmen. And one of them, Ronnie Sanderson, who was eight at the time says, it all started in the playground. The word was there was a vampire and everyone was going to head out there after school. Three o'clock, the school emptied and everyone made a beeline for it. We sat there for ages on the wall, waiting and waiting. Another person said, I think somebody saw someone wandering about and a cry went up. There's the vampire. That was it. That was the word to get off that wall quick and get away from it. So your sticks and knives are coming in real handy. (laughs) For sure. You know, one of the kids recounts, I just remember scampering home to my mother, and she asked, what's the matter with you? She said, I've seen a vampire, and I got a clout around the ear for my trouble. I didn't even know what a vampire was. (laughs) So you had hundreds of kids gathered in the cemetery, hunting the vampire, the story that had spread across the schoolyard. And you know what? They weren't all just from one school. They were from all the schools around the area. Okay, that's amazing. How did that happen? Just spread. Stories spread like wildfire. It's like the laughing sickness or the dancing fever or things like that. Right. It's like a mild form of mass hysteria. So how did they get him to go home? So the police were not having much luck. (laughs) And eventually a headmaster from one of the schools comes out and gives a big speech about how ridiculous this is. There is not a seven-foot-tall, iron-teethed vampire lurking around stealing children. But why not? I guess there could be. (laughs) And eventually was able to disperse the kids home. And another one of the kids at the time said, There was an old lady who used to carry two cats in a basket. She would go to the graveyard to get peace away from the kids and let her cats have a wonder. But she was in there 
the night we went looking for it and people were involving the Catwoman with the Iron Man. It was a shame when you think about it. She was an eccentric with wiry hair, but we called her Tin Lizzie. Aww. And she was the Iron Man's bird. <laughs> it's a shame the Catwoman was ridiculed by kids. When you're young like that, you don't think how that might hurt someone. So the Iron Man and Catwoman were together in starring roles. Basically. Sounds like a comic book. <laughs> they actually came back several more nights hunting the vampire. But I thought the headmaster poo-pooed it. Yeah, but of course, none of these kids are going to believe some stuffy headmaster. What does he know about vampires? Right. Maybe he, he probably is, is one. <laughs> so this is just the perfect scene. You had this old graveyard. Big tombstones. And above ground crypts and mausoleums. And mm. it looks like a city. It looks like the New Orleans cemeteries. Yeah, and there was this old ironworks near it that put off this red glow into the sky. And so you have a red glow. You have all the sounds coming from the ironworks. And you have the shadows jumping. And, of course, the children's imagination. Well, I mean, it's... Very convenient if you're a vampire because you can go get your teeth capped at the ironworks and then go stalk about the cemetery and, you know, not have much of a commute. Yeah, it's perfect. It's a good setup. At the time, eventually it all dispersed, all kind of died down. It is important to point out that there were no missing children in Glasgow at the time. No children reported missing. It's very different. It was a very slummy kind of, I I don't know, after reading about the foundling stuff for the baby train episode and reading about the conditions in New York, I don't doubt there were kids missing. Right, I get what you're saying, but it's not like, oh, little Timmy's not here in class today. You know what happened to him? So you're saying their faces were not on milk cartons and like that well, and was the not- ki- And the kids weren't like missing their friend. Okay. So there was no impetus for it. But it was like some boy at another school. My cousin told me that his sister's friend was not there anymore. Right. It's all good urban legends, which they call urban Miz, which I think is funny that there's that differentiation. Who calls it that? In the UK. Oh, interesting. So, of course, the good upstanding citizens of Glasgow and all of the UK and really the world, because this was reported in the newspapers and got a ton of press. Because have you seen the photos? Oh, they're fantastic. There's kids playing leapfrog on tombstones and holding stakes and climbing up mausoleums. It's amazing. So this being the 1950s, not that we don't do this now, there was this kind of idea going around in the UK that this terrible American pop culture was ruining the British and Scottish culture. As we do. And they decided... To blame comics. Oh, well, that's a tried and true tradition. Well, this is actually kind of where it starts. No. This and Wortham. Oh, okay. It was like... Good old Wortham was going on at the exact same time. Okay. So, comics are the boogeyman du jour. Right, and right now, you might say, oh, comic books, superheroes. What does Catwoman have to do with this? Well, she's there with the cats in the basket. Or what does Iron Man have to do with this? Well, he's there with his teeth eating children. Okay, what's Superman have to do with this? Nothing. <laughs> okay. But at the time, horror comics were extremely popular. Right. That's where Tales from the Crypt Right, and Vault of Horror and all these other great comics that were put out by a publisher called EC Comics. Which used to stand for, like, Educational Educational. Comics. Yeah. They started off publishing educational and also religious comics. And they were like, this just doesn't sell. Get us the Crypt Keeper! And that sold like bagels. And so, of course, they blamed this 
ideas, these ideas of monsters coming for children, stealing them away on the comic books. Right, because, you know, before comics, we didn't have any boogeymen. You know, that was a new concept that was completely invented for that storytelling medium. There have not been stories for, you know, time immemorial of children being carried away into the night by scary things. Except no. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> and so academics at the time pointed out that, hey, this has been around for millennia, including in the Bible. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7... After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I'm not seeing any resemblance there. I mean, this, this has got to be comics. It's got to be comics. Comics are the devil, surely. But really, something that fits in even better than that is that there was a poem. A poem. Yes, taught in local schools. So all of these school children had read it at school about a similar creature. And this is a poem written by Alex Anderson in the 1870s called Ginny with the Iron Teeth. It was about a female monster with iron teeth stealing off into the night with children who cried and fussed. I am going to need some help with this. All right, I'm going to try it. Ginny with the iron teeth. Come and take the brain. Take him... To your own den, where the bogey bides. But first, put bath your big teeth in his wee plump sides. Give your old grey power shake, rive him fray my grip. Take him where neck he's again, when he is wakens up. Yeah, so that didn't give anybody nightmares. <laughs> it's creepier because it's written in this dialect. Right, it is written in the Scottish dialect. Like if I wasn't trying to do an accent, I believe that reading it in my natural voice and observing the phonetics on the page would make me do it. Yeah, you have to read it in that way. Of course, that evolved, and people used that and a creature called the Iron Man to threaten school children with the same thing. Did if he you're say, bad. I am Iron Man? I think that was Ozzy Osbourne. He's scary. He is And scary. a vampire. It's true. <laughs> I've seen him eat birds. So you had this idea of a boogeyman coming around with iron teeth. You know, a lot of the kids at this time, they didn't have TVs. Or nickels and dimes and things to spend on comic books. Well, they didn't have nickels and dimes, period, because they didn't have American currency. But you get what I'm saying. And so, I mean, they had some comics, you know, some superhero comics. They trade around. At the time, they said, oh, there's really not a comic with this in it. But actually... Wait. Through way too much research. No. You didn't. There was one. There was one, you say. Was so, it Ginny? It was not. Uh. So it's a 1953 issue of the Dark Mysteries comic. And one of the stories was the vampire with the iron teeth. Was he seven feet tall? And so maybe it did have a little comic inspiration. I mean, not the cause of all this, but maybe someone did have that in the back of their mind. Well, I mean... Even if one kid who was like a ringleader had read this comic, I think that the frame of reference was pre-existing, you know, like from things like the Bible and literature. It's not as if comics created it from whole cloth. No, right. Definitely. The idea was there. The idea of vampires was there. The idea of a creature with iron teeth coming and stealing the children was in their psyche. The zeitgeist. The loving parents. And lawmakers. 
Did they did they protect our children? I have they, a feeling they protected our children. Uh, they protect the hell out of our children. Oh, good. I love when we protect the children. And so they introduced the Children and Young Persons Harmful Publications Act of 1955, which specifically banned the sale of magazines and comics portraying incidents of a repulsive or horrible nature to minors. Well, that's broad. Of course. So you could use it to ban anything. Can you ban newspapers? That's more terrifying. <laughs> and of course, you had the ideas going on in the United States that Wortham pushed forward about the terrible nature of comics that led to the comic code. And that's a whole other episode. One day, we promise, guys. Oh, it's going to happen. One day, it's our white whale. But you're right. You know, you were saying that idea of this creature, the idea of vampires, has been around for literally millennia. It's absolutely true. In so many cultures around the world, there are so many versions of undead creatures, of blood-sucking creatures, of uh, shapeshifters. A lot of the different characteristics that we see in vampires exist in this folk culture. But what I became interested in when we were talking about this story is where that folk culture intersects with high culture and pop culture. Right. What did these kids know about? What had they heard about? What was in their pop culture references? Right. So I think that the vampire mythos sort of made its pop culture debut, and I'm going to go really super obvious here, with Dracula. Oh, for sure. He is the start of what one would consider the... I think that examining the history of the Dracula vampire, the Bram Stoker version of a vampire, bears doing. I think that we should spend a little time on that. But before we do, what's your favorite version of a vampire? The Collins, of course. Those are not vampires, dear. But they glitter. I know. Vampires don't glitter. And they watch me sleep. Okay, that's kind of creepy. I was going to say, and they're not scary, but that's a little creepy. They're just a skosh date rapey, but whatever. A skosh. A skosh. My favorite vampires are the Anne Rice vampires, and I don't care what anybody says. Oh, you just like sexy Tom Cruise vampire? I don't like Tom Cruise vampire. I like Brad Pitt vampire. Oh, no. You know who I love? Antonio Banderas is the vampire. <laughs> I love him as a vampire. But yeah, I, I grew up on Anne Rice, and Anne Rice is very allegiant to the Stoker mythology, and that's one reason I've always liked her. Well, she really built on it, too. Her, her vampires had some creep. But what Stoker did was he wrote a novel called Dracula. Yeah, I've heard of it. And he changed the way that the world understood what a vampire was. Bram Stoker was born in Dublin, and he was a sickly child. And so when he was home in bed sick, his mother, who was a writer, as well as a social worker, would tell him stories. And they were usually scary stories, and he loved them. So these are the good beginnings. Hey, there was recently an article published saying a third of parents do not tell their kids scary stories. What's wrong with those parents? We are not in that one third. I bet you couldn't have guessed that. <laughs> Our kid goes to bed with either creepy true stories from history or Alvin Schwartz, scary stories to tell in the dark, or Neil Gaiman, <laughs> because we love him. So Dracula was published in 1897, and it is a true gothic horror novel. And the concept of the novel sort of turns on the idea that Dracula, this age-old vampire, is trying to leave Transylvania and come to England. And interestingly, 
it collapses a lot of Eastern European and English, Scottish, or otherwise Celtic folk mythology. Right, that is interesting. There are a lot of different elements that go into it. And so Stoker spent seven years researching European folklore and stories about vampires before he ever published this book. One of his important sources was Emily Gerard's 1885 essay, Transylvanian Superstitions. But you know, there were some vampire stories and novels written before. You know, you cannot forget what was originally, maybe, claimed by Lord Byron, but later found out to be by John Paldori, mm-hmm. called The Vampire. Shockingly accurate title. They must be bit British. Well, so that was published in 1819, and it comes from one of my favorite stories from literature, that the Shelleys... Mm-hmm. Percy and Mary. Were staying in a lovely little castle thing. As you do. It was a dark and stormy night. Seems appropriate. They were, you know, probably having a few libations, and they decided to have a scary story contest. A write-off? Hell yes. Is it like a dance-off? Except very slow. <laughs> and there are quills and ink. I like it better. <laughs> and so, of course, Mary Shelley... Got Frankenstein out of that. Good for her. It's a pretty good one. So I, I guess we'll I guess we'll say that she you know did something with her summer. Yeah, possibly one of my favorite novels. But anyway, John Poldori, who was there, who was one of their physicians, wrote this, mm-hmm. and it is the first portrayal of a vampire come as an aristocrat, kind of Byron esque. Yes, he kind of based the asshole vampire on Lord Byron. <laughs> like I'm so okay with it. It's so right. It's like, I'm tired of treating your syphilis. <laughs> Here, have some mercury. Go have your apple cider vinegar and reduce over in the corner, Byron. Enough. Enough of your shenanigans. And we can't forget Sheridan Le Fanu's 1871 Carmilla. Oh, yes. The lesbian vampire who preys upon beautiful young women. I haven't read this one, but I think I saw the movie. <laughs> that was not what that was about. <laughs> Yeah, it was on HBO, right? Yeah. You used to no, watch it. Yeah, no. No? No. That's not, that's no. not, oh. No, that never happened. Never watched Lesbian Vampires on HBO. Mm-mm. Those are kind of maybe the literary inspirations, some of the the seeds of thought that could have gone into Dracula as Stoker was preparing to write this novel. Oh, and don't forget that there were Penny Dreadful circulating at the time, which were full of vampire stories. So this is kind of in the public consciousness. He's not inventing this himself, but he's definitely establishing a firm set of rules that govern the vampire's behavior. Yeah, he's drawing inspiration from everywhere. So what are some of the non-literary inspirations? So one thought is that he sort of incorporated aspects of the city, which are Celtic beings, and sometimes they're called Sith as well. There's a lot of various spellings, and I'm sure various pronunciations, none of which I'm even getting close to. And they're described as exceedingly beautiful, with the potential to be terrible and hideous. And they sort of occupy this parallel world of the dead that brushes against the world of the living. And they can come closest to the living at dusk. And they're a supernatural race occupying the other world or the land of the dead. Oh, so we have supernatural, near-death, nighttime. Right, and they're pretty. Which sometimes the vampires are pretty. Sometimes. Not in Bram Stoker's, though. Well, that's just because Whitman wasn't that cute. (laughs) By the way, some people think he 
kind of physical attributes for Dracula from Walt Whitman. Which I love. I love that story and I'm keeping it. And other people think that the Apertoc, which is an Irish dwarf, may have been one of the inspirations that he drew from. So there's a story that this dwarf was a magician and a dreadful tyrant and he perpetuated great cruelties. So this is way back in the day when there's still kind of tribes. And so he is slain by a neighboring chieftain and they bury him standing up. And he appears the next day, and he's even meaner than he was before. So the chief kills him again. And because this is a folktale, fable, fairy tale thing, you know he's coming back again because everything has to happen in threes. So they kill him, they bury him standing up, and he does come back that third day. And he spread terror through the entire country. So the chief goes and consults a druid about how to take care of the problem. And he says, we'll just bury him upside down. So the chief kills him a third time. And they bury him upside down, and that quells his magic, and he can't come back and wreak havoc on the good people of the British Isles. Okay, so we have someone with kind of almost mystical, magical-ish powers that can come back after being killed. Yeah, and he can physically harm the living, despite the fact that he's dead. He has this kind of immortality. Right, and there's there's a certain way to deal with him. And you have to go find the person who knows specifically how to deal with him or he's just going to keep coming back no matter how many times you kill him. Right, but that idea is like in all of folklore that you have to have that wise man. Well, yeah. Another, this is my favorite of the sort of British inspirations, the Revenant. And as I'm researching this, all I can think about is Hugh Glass. Oh, you mean Leo fights a bear? Leo fights a bear for hours. And I got slightly distracted. But that's not this Revenant. The Revenant is a visible ghost or an animated corpse, and it comes from the French verb meaning to come back. And they come back and terrorize the living. They would come back from their graves, pick on the living, and then go back to their tombs. And they would look as if they had not been disturbed. And in several stories, the Revenants come back and drink human blood. They also make people ill and cause their death. And King James linked the Revenant to the demon Incubus, in his writing on demons. So you have that kind of seductive, using sexual prowess to seduce victims and lure them into their traps. Yeah, I mean, it almost has like a, t- a touch of zombie, but just the modern idea of what a zombie is, the like walking dead, night of the living dead idea. Right, that walking corpse. If you think about it, zombies were just kind of mind-dead people. They were never like flesh-eating or anything like that. That was very tacked on in modern interpretations, like if a true Haitian voodoo zombie is not Walking Dead. It's basically nothing like The Walking Dead. Yeah, so I think that Revenant is a really close representation. And actually, um, in my reading on that, it said like the most closely related modern depiction is probably I Am Legend because of the emphasis on disease and spreading and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's definitely a really big component of this. We'll get into that in a minute. You know, and in that folklore, trying to prevent people from coming back, trying to prevent them from becoming a revenant, was really a big idea. The Romanians and Eastern Europeans had a lot of different ways of trying to deal with this. So the revenant idea had roots in Eastern Europe as well. Yes. And so it was felt that if a bat, insect, or flying creature passed over a corpse, that could turn them into one. Wait, a bat? Hmm. Mm. 
Uh, they would also drive steel or iron needles into their clothes or body or heart. That was to keep them from coming up. Oh, my. So a stake through the heart, you say? Oh, well, actually. They would also had you know, different herbs and woods that also would prevent this from occurring, such as hawthorn. Mm-hmm. And they'd put hawthorn in the corpse's clothes, like in their socks. Or they would drive a hawthorn stake through their legs. I bet this was great insurance against being buried alive as well. And another folk way was that they would put garlic in their mouths. What? Why garlic? It was a way to prevent it. I guess why Hawthorne, too. I mean, as long as we're questioning things. So it was pretty universal, then. The garlic prevents the people from waking up and coming back and being... Well, it was in that area. Okay. And in Saxon Germany, they put a lemon. Oh, I guess they just had a different palate. (laughs) Of course. I mean, I'd prefer garlic, but... Who wouldn't? We have some folk figures that may have inspired Brahm as he was writing Dracula. But did you know that Dracula was not the original name of that character? What was it? Count Vampire. Oh, that's original. Right? I think that he, he kind of thought, I can do better. And so he decided to do better. And he was doing a lot of research on Eastern European tradition and history. And he came across Vlad. Vlad III, who was born in 1431 in a now non-existent area of Hungary. Like, nobody knows exactly where this was. But he was of the house Draculesti, and it was, he took the name Dracul to refer back to his father's line, kind of to give himself a diminutive form of the Dracul name. So it'd be like adding son to John, Johnson. So he added the ah, so he became Dracul ah. Where'd the name Dracul come from? Order of the Dragon which was associated with his family before he was born. And dragons were monstrous beasts and now have become synonymous with devils. He was also given the nickname Vlad Tepes. Tepes means impaler. And that was assigned posthumously. And before that, he was known by something different. Lord Impaler. Oh, well, give him him the title. Don't forget that or he will impale you. Yeah. So he really liked impaling people. He's a big fan. Big, big fan of impaling people. What's impaling people? What does it mean to impale someone? Just kind of driving a stake through them. (laughs) Usually driving a stake through them and leaving them up. Yeah, he was a big fan of leaving them up as well. He was said to have left forest of impaled victims. And that was reported by people from the Ottoman Empire that were trying to war with him. And they estimated that his forest had about 20,000 corpses in it. Wow, that would frighten. That'd be so scary. He was eventually decapitated by the Turks, and his head was displayed on a stake to prove that he was dead, which seems fitting. Yeah, definitely. Like he would have wanted it almost. He was kind of impaled. Yeah. His estimated death toll was between 40,000 and 100,000 people. He roasted children whom he fed their mothers, and he cut off breasts of women and forced their husbands to eat them, and after that they were all impaled. And he wrote that he'd killed peasant men and women, old and young, who have lived in various places where the Danube flows into the sea. We killed 23,884 Turks without counting those we burned in homes or the Turks whose head were cut by our own soldiers. Thus, your highness, you know that I have broken the peace. And he wrote that in 1462. Yeah, so this isn't just history going back and saying, oh, this guy was terrible and then making up stories about him. First person claiming it. He knows he has disturbed the peace. 
He was kind of a dynamic figure and apparently quite a sight to behold. A bishop who met him described him this way. He had a strong aquiline nose, swollen nostrils, a thin reddish face in which very long eyelashes framed large, wide open green eyes. The bushy black eyebrows made them appear threatening. His face and chin were shaven, but for a mustache and a bull's neck connected his head with his body from which black curly locks hung on his wide-shouldered person. And that is kind of a similar description to how Bram Stoker describes Dracula. He does not describe him as this attractive, good-looking guy. I mean, he looks kind of like kind of like Walt Whitman. Kind of like Walt Whitman? It's like Walt Whitman and Vlad the Impaler had a baby. Which I'd want to hang out with, weirdly. Like, I would want to hang out with that guy. That says so much about you. <laughs> I want to buy him a drink and just ask him how his day's going. But yeah, a lot of people... Like to, as they do, like to argue. Oh, no. People are arguing academics then. Oh, of course. Oh, these are academics? Of course. Okay. And they like to say, oh, no. It wasn't based on him because everyone has to argue. But there are several passages in Dracula that very much reference... Our buddy Vlad. Yeah, named Dracula. Yeah. Who fights the Turks. Yeah. Kills a bunch of them. Even one passage of Van Helsing says, he must indeed have been that... Vovede Dracula, who won his name against the Turk over the great river on the very frontier of Turkeyland. Turkeyland! It's not as exciting as you think. I want to go to Turkeyland. Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty concrete tie between Vlad and Dracula. And you know, before we move away from the book, an interesting point is that one of the characters who is turned into a vampire, Lucy is described as this beautiful woman stalking through the English graveyards looking for children. She would have had a field day in Gorbals. Schmuggersburg. <laughs> you can look at the time period in which Dracula is written and look at contemporary novels like Frankenstein by Mary Shelley and kind of see that there is this big conflict between science this new emerging field and superstition, tradition, and sort of romantic understandings of human nature. Yeah, and don't forget religion. Oh, yeah, that. It's important. I tend to forget. Okay, so Dracula personifies that conflict by introducing us to a skeptic, and we're literally drawn through his experiences in epistolary form. Ah, the first found footage horror movie novel. (laughs) Yes, that's accurate. That's actually a true fact. Academics wouldn't even argue with you. Don't believe you. No, I don't either. It's a lie. It's a big fat lie. And then you have the character of Van Helsing, who is introduced as a learned man. Uh, he's the man of science. The professor. The doctor. And he comes in and he's going to use his new learning to eliminate this threat. But through his struggle, he's forced to resort to the old ways, the traditional ways, and all of the superstitions he's encountered. All right, so he has to go to the garlic, to the crosses, to the sacramental wafers, to the rituals, through driving a stake through the vampire's heart and cutting off his head and stuffing his mouth with garlic. Which is not scientific. Right. In the least. away from it. Yeah, of course. right. Even though it's presented as a hard, concrete method, it's just good old-fashioned trial and error that leads us to that conclusion, I guess. But, you know, before Dracula is made into the classic, universal, amazing horror movie, there was an attempt to make it into a movie before that. Really? Yes. Really? So, Nosferatu, 
oh my god, that's the scariest movie of all time. <laughs> it really is frightening. It was made in 1922. And so the filmmaker wanted to make Dracula. Okay. And Bram Stoker's widow would not give him the rights. So I guess he just couldn't make a vampire movie then. He just had to go be sad. No, so he basically took pretty much the story. Uh-huh. Gutted it. Uh-huh. Drained it of blood. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and made his own version. Okay. There's still a lot of big components of Dracula in it. So what did he change? So he changed the names. Now instead of Dracula, you have Count Orlok, mm-hmm. who is played by Max Schreck. I've heard Willem Dafoe told me <laughs> that he was really a vampire. So that is a legend surrounding this film. And he was this method actor, so no one saw him out of character. And Which, if you've seen the character, it's a hell of a character to stay in. It's very frightening. So people really thought he was maybe an actual vampire. So he was good at his job, is what you're saying. Oh, he was. I highly recommend you pause. Go watch it. Google it. It's on YouTube. You can see some clips from the movie. You can see the whole movie. It's amazing. I may have sat outside in the dark and watched it with no sound last night. (laughs) Yeah, so F.W. Murnau did change some details. He changed the characters' names, and he changes the setting. He sets it in 1830s Germany, so all the background characters are wearing Lederhosen. Of course. It's quite fun. He changed the look of Dracula, became much more like demon-like, much more of a creature of the night. He has these long, pointy ears. Max Shrek just walks in this really frightening way where he doesn't move any of his limbs. Right, and I think they built up his shoulders, mm-hmm. you know, with mm-hmm. the costuming. He's made to look really tall and thin. He doesn't blink throughout the movie. That's amazing. Yeah, there's one time he blinks, that's just so, you know. Shh. <laughs> And Murnau was a fanatical director. If he was doing a movie, he was researching it years in advance. Uh, He would go on to do a movie about trapeze artists called The Four Devils, and he spent like an entire summer with the Ringling uh, Circus, traveling with them on the road and trying to discover talent and see what it was like to live among the circus. And I'm sure that this was a similar process for him. Oh, definitely. This was all filmed on location. In an old castle. In Eastern Europe. Ah, no sound stages. No sound. <laughs> and actually, this movie is where the idea that a vampire is hurt by the sun comes from. Now, there is some folklore ideas that they usually come out at dusk of the night. But the idea that if they come out into the sun and they start to like burn and get hurt really came into pop culture from this. Right. Not from Dracula. And Anne Rice definitely capitalizes on that idea. So she's incorporated that. Vampire lore becomes combined and condensed really rapidly from this point on. Yeah, well, this movie also takes away all of that spiritual element of it and all that religious element. And it really takes a very German twist. It's a little little nihilistic. It's a lot of nihilistic. Yeah, it is. I I was going to say earlier, he looks like a bat. Oh, yeah. He definitely looks like a bat. So... After this movie, in 1922, the next major Dracula appearance in pop culture is Bela Lugosi's universal debut. Right, and that movie came straight from the Dracula play that was being put on that Bela Lugosi and several of the actors in the movie were in. Right, and they did have the rights. They could use the name. That was all cool and kosher. 
And interestingly, Bella Lugosi would not wear makeup. Right. He would not wear a lot of makeup, so it really gave me more of that pale complexion. And they kind of were like, hey, let's let's get a little Christianity back in here, right? But they still kind of downplayed all that superstition. I mean, we had to market this towards all of the good Americans. Oh, yeah. This is when uh, the code was in full swing in Hollywood. So we're getting... It's when it had started. It's mm-hmm. when it started. It went in full swing a little later. The, these movies were some of the inspiration for it being really enforced were the Universal Monster movies. What later became the MPAA. And you know, the idea of the cape mm. that Dracula wears actually comes from the play. And it was used um, to be able to make him kind of disappear. Oh, okay. It's making a lot of sense. But how great is a cape? Oh, I know. Like, everyone should have a cape. Except superheroes. No, we've seen The Incredibles. We know how that goes. After Universal sort of has their way with Dracula. And he does come back for sequels and things. Lots of them. We move on to... The Hammer films. And so these were out in the 50s. Late 50s. So not your Leave it to Beaver days. And they star Christopher Lee as Dracula. Calm down. Mm, Christopher Lee. He's fabulous. They kind of amp up the sex and amp up the violence. And it's a little more graphic. And it's a little more gothic. And it's a little bit more like horror. Yeah, I mean, the horror was not dampened down in the 30s movie, but it was amped up in this movie. I guess, like, more slasher? Oh, yeah, they could show the blood. They could mm-hmm. show the red blood jumping down Christopher Lee's white-painted face. And then the next major incarnation of Dracula was in 1992. This was your favorite movie as a kid. It was. My sister had it on VHS and I would sneak it every chance I got because it was like one of the few movies that like there was a strict ban on for me to watch. And so that made it all the more important that I see it as many times as possible. So this is Gary Oldman as Dracula, which I did not know that he was Dracula. Like I had this experience with the VHS in my early life and then went on and fell in love with him again as Sirius and as Commissioner Gordon. And one day I put together that he was Dracula. It made me so incredibly happy. (laughs) Yeah, that movie started to incorporate a lot more of the history and amped up the sex and some of the romance even. Mm -hmm. One thing I always remember about that movie is how often like Mina and Lucy talked. Like, I kind of loved that when I was a kid. These scenes of, like, these two women in these gorgeous gowns. Of course, the costumes in that movie are just, like, edible. They're gorgeous. Would it pass the Bechdel test? I don't know. I can't remember what they're talking about. I'm almost certain it's a man. I think Uh. they're talking about Jonathan, so I don't think it would pass the Bechdel test. But I do remember, like, being struck by that image as a kid. In this horror movie, there are these gorgeous scenes in this female space. But I also have to comment that I think Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing is maybe the best thing ever. Uh, don't forget Keanu. Uh, no, I do. I do. I completely forget Keanu. He's entirely forgettable in this movie and every other movie. <laughs> Let's just feed him to the vampire sisters. He would like that. He'd be into it. Let's not lie. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> you would be into it. Let's not lie. That movie definitely capitalized on the idea that Dracula was Vlad. The Impaler. There are scenes where we get that kind of like cool shadow puppet theater with all the bodies on the stakes. And we get that end scene, the renunciation of God, where he's like stabbing the cross and the blood flows out and he screams and 
Van Helsing's there, but like reincarnated. Anthony Hopkins is playing the priest, and Rinona Ryder's definitely his love interest wife thing who died. It's it's crazy. It's so good. I love this movie. I still love this movie. <laughs> oh Coppola. Oh Coppola, you dog, you. So that's uh, that's kind of where we leave Dracula. Now we could we could digress. I mean, we talked about Anne Rice. You yeah. know, she starts to add even more sex to it. There is more of the immortality element added in. Right. And she draws out this idea of like being stuck in the form mm-hmm. that you were in. As like, the curse. Yeah. Like you can't age, you can't change, you can't. You know, like she sees the, the drawbacks of uh, immortality very clearly. And really, while Dracula and the ideas led to Anne Rice. You see that a lot of the modern, very modern ideas of vampires, like in, let's say, True Blood and things like that, definitely stem from Anne Rice. Yeah, absolutely. Now, True Blood does have some rules. Like, they definitely do, but they play them up in an almost comedic way. I love True Blood. I've seen every episode. It's awful. So you can see how the ideas of the vampire were very prevalent at the time that this event took place. With the vampire in Scotland, but how it has just become such a huge part of pop culture. And it has been analyzed to death. Academics, you say? And it's come back from death. Is it now stalking the living? Pretty much. And masquerading in Twilight garb? Unfortunately. Okay. So, I mean, there's like, there's so many analyses. We're not going to go into all of this. Some people say that Dracula is an embodiment of Freudian id. Freud! I haven't seen Freud in so long. I kind of think Dracula and Freud look alike. Because Freud kind of looks like Walt Whitman. Uh, Some people say it's a response to the powerful new woman at the time. No. (laughs) Of course, latent homosexuality. Yeah, that one. Yeah. I can see that one. Yeah, I can see that one. Like a lot. Anxiety over colonialism. Anxiety over racial mixing. Maybe. So, so, so much. So much. But some of the interesting papers that came out that I find fascinating are what are the possible medical conditions that could have led to the idea of a vampire in folk tradition? So the things that inspire Dracula. So these would be the things that make it not just a story. That's right. These are things that are real. I can't believe you find this interesting. One of the main ones, one of the main ideas is porphyria. Okay, what's porphyria? So, one person that probably had porphyria that you may know about is King George. The Mad King. The one with the overalls. That had the little farm. They sent him to the little farm. That's right. And we're like, go play in the dirt, George. We'll see ya. Yeah, and so the madness of King George possibly could have been porphyria. Okay. And so porphyria is related to a buildup of porphyrins in the body. It's a component of the protein of hemoglobin. So hemoglobin is like red blood cells? Right, hemoglobin's in your blood. It's the protein that holds oxygen. Immediately a connection with blood. Mm-hmm. And this idea was actually proposed fairly recently, in the grand scheme of things, in 1985 by Dr. David Dolphin, and he was a biochemist at the University of British Columbia. He linked this to congenital erythropoietic porphyria, because there are a few different versions of it. But in this cutaneous version, you have the buildup of these proteins in the skin. Okay, so what would it make your skin look like? So you'd be very oversensitive to sunlight. So if you went out in the sun your skin would turn red and swell and 
blister. Right. So if you stay out of the sun all the time, you're going to be like ghostly pale. Exactly. Okay. Plus, you are prone to having anemia, which would also make you pale. Okay. So you're basically see-through. While you'd have these blisters that would take weeks to heal, once they healed, they'd be scarred. You'd Hmm. lose hair because that area would be scarred and no longer grow hair. You'd have hair growth in weird places, like on your hands, Mm -hmm. which Dracula is described as having. You'd also have other odd things like red or brown urine. Um, Okay, so you pee blood. Oh, no. No, but like you're not in this century and somebody pees red. You're like they are peeing blood because they've eaten so much blood. Now it's just coming out of them everywhere. Sure. I'm not sure when you were seeing them pee blood, but who knows? Everybody saw everybody peeing all the time. This is the olden days. Yeah, this is what you do. And they'd also have collections of this protein in their bones and teeth. And it would cause erythrodontia. Erythrodontia. Dontia's teeth erythro i have no idea what is a red no like bloody teeth so your teeth would look blood red because you would have that buildup in the the teeth so it'd be inside your teeth so it's not like you could scrub it off no but think about the dental hygiene back in the day too like i'm thinking about like where the folk stories would come from right so you'd have this guy will not come out in the sun Mm -hmm. he only comes out at night This can cause some psychological problems, so maybe acting very odd. He has scars, and he has bone problems, so he might be kind of deformed. And walk, kind of. And walk, yeah. And he also has teeth that are stained blood red. Yeah, I can see how rumors get started here. Yeah. Like I said, you have this anemia, which means you have a low red blood cell count. Mm -hmm. You have very pale skin. And, interestingly, garlic does induce heme-degrading enzyme, hemoxygenase 1, basically meaning if you eat more garlic, you'd be more anemic. So they needed to avoid garlic. Yes. So they would not want to eat anything with garlic in it. And of course, people have said... As you do. That, oh, maybe they were trying to replenish their blood since they were so anemic by drinking blood. I don't think it works like that, but it, I don't it, it know. It doesn't. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I would just, I would guess that, like, that, that logic doesn't play out. It, it really doesn't. It, I mean, this is where you're really grasping. <laughs> they've actually done studies, and they've shown that with the oral intake of heme, you really do not have an increased amount of red blood cells in your body. So basically, it doesn't work. <laughs> so you cannot consume a bunch of blood and increase your blood supply. That's not how it works. And also... There was literally a study in 1995 showing that people with porphyria do not have an increased craving for blood. <laughs> Your tax dollars at work, folks. So, an interesting idea. And you can definitely see, oh, maybe, maybe. I don't think that they necessarily have to be drinking blood in order to get labeled a vampire. Does that make sense? Like, oh, definitely. You're just like... Yeah, that Max Shrek and his porphyria over there scares the shit out of me because I'm an 1830s German peasant. Another disease that's often linked to it is rabies. I think rabies fits with the revenant like almost exactly perfectly. It really does. And if you think about where it comes from, it's transmitted through saliva, through through a bite, Mm -hmm. just like vampirism is. One common animal that has it are bats. Right. Along with dogs and wolves. And remember that Dracula is tied with wolves as well. Right. In the book. 
And in and in the Gary Oldman movie. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Creatures of the night. Oh, and there's a Jekyll in Nosferatu. In Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. And so with rabies, you do have hydrophobia, muscle agitation, insomnia, and bizarre behavior. So hydrophobia meaning fear of water, which is like the holy water getting thrown on them and them freaking out. Could be. Okay. And so even the sight of water can cause people with rabies to go crazy, just to act wild. So did the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz have rabies? Maybe so. Hmm. Yes, it causes like your larynx just spasms up even by seeing water. And you can also have like episodes where you're coughing up blood and then you have this bestial hypersexual behavior where you'll be like baring your teeth, acting very strangely. And even one's own reflection can cause these muscle spasms. Okay, so you can't see yourself in mirrors? Right, you'd avoid them. Yeah, I think it fits. And you you do try to bite more. Like, there is actually, like, an impulse to bite, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so that's yes. not just made up. Right, no, it's it affects the limbic system. So you just start acting really strangely, maybe coming out at weird times of the night, would be attacking people, biting people, foaming at the mouth, etc. Yeah, because, like, there's something specifically about rabies that... It causes people to want to transmit it? Is that Yeah, well, kind of. Yeah, kind of. You know, the way that biological evolution has worked, it affects the brain into the limbic system to where it will cause you to have these just behaviors to where you will be more aggressive. And increase your chances of transmitting. Right, exactly. Because the virus that does that... Gets to go to the next person and keep being a virus. Yes. All right, so... Yeah, they come back to kill and spread sickness and terrorize, and they look like walking corpses. Because their appearance changes pretty radically, too, huh? Like, they're fa- it's like a facial thing. Oh, well, you have, like, muscle spasms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can, like, pull your lip up, bare your teeth, make just strange faces, act very oddly. And there are several other sorts of illnesses that are linked to this, maybe. <laughs> but those are really the two, to me, that fit really closely Mm -hmm. but you know if we come come a little further through time further than 1985 yes oh goodness we're still in the 80s but Uh, but let's go let's go to our our other favorite topic like psychology psychology? Yeah. yeah okay we already mentioned freud the patron saint of this podcast sometimes a podcast is just a podcast that's just a story (laughs) and we get to something called renfeld syndrome wait that's he's in the book. What R- book? Dracula. Yes. Renfeld. He's his assistant, his crazy ass assistant who's in the asylum, right? Yes, he is. So this is a crazy ass assistant who's in an asylum? This is the like these are the diagnostic criteria? Well so this is not in the DSM. Okay. This has just been proposed in papers. It's not in the DSM? It's not, so it's not an official diagnosis. Can we pretend we don't care? Yes. Okay, let's do that. And so, of course, another name for Renfeld syndrome is clinical vampirism. I love it. This was originally described in the 1980s by Herschel Prynne, but it was named by Richard Knowles. Because Richard Knowles thought of a great name, and mm. everyone was like, you win! Yeah, so it was kind of tongue-in-cheek when they named it, but then it kind of gained a little steam. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I think it's clever. And so in these people with this psychological disorder, they 
feel that blood has this mystical quality that can enhance their lives. Really? And so it starts at this prepubertal stage. So you're a kid, and you have some sort of incident. Scrape your foot, getting to put a band-aid on, etc. Or it could be some kind of relation where you have to ingest blood. You know, I guess like you knock your tooth in or something like that. Okay. And you have some sort of excitement from it. You get a thrill. It says arousal. I don't even want to say arousal. I think later it's tied with arousal. Okay, so you have an initial incident where you ingest blood either kind of like out of morbid curiosity or by just pure force of gravity. Right, like one person that had this said that she used to, you know, pull her band-aids off and like lick the blood. So later on, you know, when puberty comes into full force. As it does. Freud would be excited about this part. Freud's excited about a lot of things. The ideas of blood and ingestion of blood become fused with sexual fantasies. Okay. So that's when, like, the arousal is tied to it. Right. Like, is that something that, like, happens by accident to these people? Or is it, like, are they in a situation? Like, is it necessary? I think if you you asked a psychologist if anything happens by accident, you know what their answer would be. Hmm. Okay. Subconscious desires, blah, 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 blah. Et cetera. And well, so, now I've just had that 80-minute discussion in my own head, and I'm feeling ashamed of myself for so many things. Do you have Renfeld syndrome? I don't. I don't. And so next comes the auto-vampirism. Auto yourself? Yeah. So like, so like licking your own wounds, cutting yourself to be able to ingest your own blood. Uh-huh. Et and so it develops this like fetishistic component to it. Then so some- I mean that can still kind of be done in a reasonably like not alarming, not harmful to anyone else, like closely monitored way, right? As all as all fetishes can. Okay, yeah. Right. So that's not that's not cause to like pack them away and send them off to No, yeah. Remember, you do not have a psychological disorder unless it causes some sort of disturbance in your life. Okay, so as long as it's within the realm of, like, controlled and you're not cutting off your arms or hurting other people, okay, so this is just, like, a thing that people like. Yeah, and then sometimes you can move on to zoophagia. Zoo is animals. Zoo is definitely animals. All right, so drinking different animals' blood. And then you get to the next point, which would be vampirism. Is it, like, it means, like, drinking other people's blood? Yeah, so this could be done in several different ways. You could steal blood from hospitals. Yeah, there are plenty of people that do that, which is weird, but I found a lot of it. Would you say plenty? <laughs> I think one's plenty. You're right. Once you get to the plural of people stealing blood to drink it, it's a little too much. It's plenty. That's plenty. We don't need any more. Yeah, plenty. And then the other part, of course, is drinking other people's blood. This is usually done in a consensual manner, like okay. through sexual acts. Okay. And usually involved in that way. And, you know, that that's fine. Yep. Everybody says okay. Everybody knows what's going on. As long as we're not pulling the knife, like, and be like, so by the way, like in the middle of the act, I think like as long as we have informed consent and everyone's an adult. You should list that on Tinder. If you're going to pull a knife, you should definitely list it on Tinder. Absolutely. But, you know, sometimes you do have these desires go the wrong way. Well, that's, I mean... God, that can be said for everything, right? Right, but these can kind of lead to more of a murderous situation. Yeah, that can be said for everything. 
Unfortunately, I don't think that's unique to drinking blood, but I can see how wanting to drink someone's blood, wanting to take away the thing that makes them be alive and put it in your own body could be problematic for the person that you're taking the blood from. So I would argue that this concept of the vampire really took hold in the universal consciousness, the public's mind, when we started having more widespread news, when something that happened in one city could be reported in numerous cities or across the globe eventually. Like the Gorbals vampire. Like the Gorbals vampires, but even like Jack the Ripper. Oh, very true. There were American correspondents sent specifically to London to cover the Jack the Ripper case. Like, it was news here as well as there. So you have this idea, this emerging idea of this murdering monster, the serial killer, that's sort of coming into the public imagination. And you have this idea of this gentleman vampire, basically Lord Byron with Renfeld syndrome and... You have the gentleman serial killer. You have this man who's seducing these women and taking their guts and whatever. And these unimaginable acts, these inhuman acts. And so I think because you have things like Jack the Ripper and various and sundry other mass serial killers coming into the popular imagination at the same moment, those ideas kind of get linked Yeah, and there are so many serial killers at this time that got the lovely label vampire. The vampire of city. The vampire of town. So before we go any further, let's just take a moment and I want to clear up once and for all the metal teeth thing. The metal teeth vampire who eats children. That's the story, right? Um, No. No. No, 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 that's the noise you make when you're disagreeing with me. What? What can you possibly have to say about this? So he was called Metal Fang. Yeah, okay, fine. Real name. Ready for it? Are you going to try to say something in Russian? Nikola Zumegliev. Very good. Nikola Zumegliev. Good job. I'm very proud of you. It didn't sound French at all. Just a little. And so he was in Kazakhstan. Also didn't sound French. He just happened to have... False white metal teeth. Were they pointed or were they just metal? Just metal. Okay. And so from 1979 to 1980, he was active in his serial killing. He would often invite friends over for dinner parties. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jacob. Do you want to go to this guy's dinner party? Yeah. He's going to have a lot of meat there. Okay. Bacon? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Okay. Wine? Probably. Okay, yeah. I don't drink wine. I never drink wine. And so he did this frequently. And one day he invited two town drunks over to the house for, quote, snacks. You have to imagine him just giggling to himself as he says, would you like to come over for snacks? (laughs) And when they got there, they discovered a woman's head and intestines in the kitchen being prepared to cook. I made nom-noms. Like, really? Yep. And so he would often lure prostitutes into the dark end of a park. He would rape them, kill them, and then cook parts of his victims and eat their flesh with his metal teeth. Okay. And the rest he would bag up and take home with him, you know. Leftovers. Yeah, dinner parties. 
how did we not find him when we were doing our Meet His Murder episode? I'm kind of disappointed in us. That was like the fourth episode. Okay, fine. Yeah, we were not. Our research skills were still developing. Oh, my God. So there really was a guy with metal teeth who, like, eight people. Yeah, he killed over seven women. So he was convicted for seven women. He may have killed, like, 50. Like, a ton. He caught after the head thing? Is that yes, what did him in? Yes. Okay. And he was declared insane. Okay. Yeah. yeah <laughs> he was committed on December of 1981. No. Oh God. Oh God. He's still. Oh no. Oh no. 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 I don't want you to say the next thing you're going to say. You're going to say he's still alive. Of course he's still alive. No. But wait. Better than that, he escaped in 1989. No, he didn't. But he was recaptured. Oh God. You're taking me on a roller. Two years thing. later. No. He ate so many people. He ate so many people. So there is no proof that he did eat anybody. He ate people, Jacob. But, you know, of course, there were legends and stories going around Moscow. Of course there were. That he was around killing people and eating them. And drinking their blood. So, not a vampire. No, he's a cannibal. Not not Reinfeld syndrome. No. But he had iron teeth. He was a redneck with iron teeth. Like he, he ate was, people. Yeah. Was, he, oh, uh. So he doesn't fit. Our diagnostic criteria have not been met. And I, I think we may need to, to do something that we did way back when on our, our Meet is Murder episode where we have a little bit of a vampire off. We had a cannibal off back then. A vampire off, you say? I do. I have my cape. <laughs> I have my widow's peak. I have my cats in a basket. I have my picture of Peter Skarsgård. <laughs> You mean Alexander Skarsgård? <laughs> Not as sexy. Not Tarzan. I have my glitter. So let's go through some serial killers that got the lovely label of vampire. I think that there's no more appropriate way to spend our evening. So I offer you the Hanover Vampire. Would that be Fritz Harman? Fritz Harman. So Fritz Harman has a very interesting history. At the age of 16, he had his first kind of run-in with the law. Mm-hmm. Did he fight the law? He lost. So he, of course, lured a child away mm-hmm. and tortured them and things like that. And, you know. Okay. And he was arrested. Caught. Thrown in jail. That was in 1896. Oh, so, he so was, this is vintage, vintage this, yeah, shit. This is around okay. the time period. Okay. This is all coming up. He was placed in one of the time's lovely mental institutions. So what you're saying is they put him in a box and fucked him up some more. And he was certified incurably deranged. <laughs> oh, God. I want that on a t-shirt. He escaped 16 months later. Okay, so we're also into letting vampires escape. Apparently that's going to be a thing we do. Well, his mom helped. Okay, so moms are also going to be a thing. They haven't been a thing yet, but they will be. Just you wait. And he fled to Zurich, then returned to Hanover. Where he took up knitting and adopted a hippo, and they lived out their days in harmony, and... Nah. So, where did you get the hippo? I don't know. But he continued his life of crime. I mean, he was a petty thief, a con artist. He often stole from graves. He was in and out of prison. He was in the military for two different bouts. He had some sort of kind of epilepsy-like syndrome. You know, this is over 100 years ago, so it's hard to say exactly what he had. Did he have uh, frontal lobe epilepsy and have visions and shit? Who knows? 
I would go with it. I mean, so okay, so wait, he's out there like stealing from graves, so he's in the cemetery at night. Yep. Yeah, I'm sure that didn't help his image. Things began to worsen. Hmm. Between 1918 and 1924, he committed at least, at least 24 murders. Holy shit, those are Gacy numbers. Yeah, well, he later, he himself claimed that he killed somewhere between 50 and 70 young boys. I can't believe, like, he's missing assurance on 20. He's like, there could possibly be 20 more. Like, there are 20 that I can't comment on. Like, how do you lose 20? Well, the 24 was what he was able to be charged with. So No, so he wasn't, he was actually convicted of 24 murders. You're jumping ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So he would lure these young boys off to some secluded place, usually like a cellar, where he would give them food and wine and then strangle them and bite through their Adam's apple. Oh, my God. Which he called, quote, love bites. That's not a fucking love bite. I was going to tell him to Google it, but he couldn't. But no, that is not what that is. That's murdery, vampire So the bodies were dismembered and discarded in the local river. On interview and during the trial, he was asked about this. And he said, of course, it repulsed him. But his excitement, which is so great that he was able to do it. He was insistent that his passion at the moment of murder was invariably, quote, stronger than the horror of the cutting and the chopping. Uh. Unlike our friend Nikolai, he would take the flesh and not serve it to his friends. This is, of course, conjecture. No one's sure if this actually happened. He would sell the meat on the black market as minced meat. He's Sweeney Todd with paraphilias. In a way, but he doesn't really fit the vampire thing. We don't know if he really drank their blood. He was more necrophagous. What does that mean? So necro dead. Mm-hmm. Phages feed, eat. So he would more eat the flesh than drink their blood. Okay. But he did have that. There was that sexual component to it. And the biting the throat the is biting. a thing. So yeah, that's a thing. So he's he's kind of fitting in, but not all the way. Okay. He didn't have that need, that desire to drink their blood. Okay, so I have a guy that, that did do a little blood drinking in his day, and his name is Peter Curtin. What was his moniker? The Dusseldorf Vampire. Ooh. Ooh, I know. So I'd like to point out that this guy, Fritz Harman, was active from 1918 to 1924, and then Peter Curtin was active... From 1913 to 1929. What came out in 1922 in Germany? Nosferatu. Right. I think that there's a little bit of real easy connection right there. And then another great German director, Fritz Lang. Created the movie M, based on Peter Curtin. So he's known to have killed nine victims. They think there are plenty more. To understand the crazy, which was Peter Curtin, we can kind of start at the end. After he was convicted of these murders, he was set to be executed by guillotine. And he asked the prison psychiatrist, Tell me, after my head has been chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? Oh, and it was in German. Mm Mm-hmm. And the doctor's like, Nah. Yeah, your ears and brain will probably function for several seconds after the blade strikes. And he says, that would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. I got goosebumps. And interestingly, another thing was going on in Germany at this time. 
Nazis. 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 Hate those guys. Hate those guys, yeah. But they were using Harmon and Curtin as propaganda pieces and promising to like stamp out this threat. Right, because one of the many groups that they wanted to stamp out were the psychologically impaired. Okay, yeah. And these guys, these guys probably do qualify as psychologically impaired. So he's suspected of killing as many as 68 victims. This began at age nine when he was out playing with some friends and he pushed one of the boys off the raft that they were playing on in the water. And another boy jumped in to try and save the kid that Curtin had pushed off. And so Curtin drowned them both. But the death was ruled accidental. Both of them. Of course. But this is kind of where we're coming from. And he started being incarcerated, which he was in and out of incarceration from a young age. When he was 16, because he got caught... Um, in an incestuous relationship with his 13-year-old sister. He got out, and in 1913, he he was looking for a place to rob because he was homeless and kind of living by his wits, and he came upon a 10-year-old girl sleeping and murdered her. But then in 1914, he was in the army, and he went AWOL because he was kind of an asshole, and that's what you do, and he got incarcerated again, and he kept acting out so he would be put in solitary because he couldn't stand being around other people. And he was released in 1921. And in 1925, he started attacking women and setting fires and doing those things that, you know, serial killers do. So from the time of his release, there are no deaths directly attributed to him. That we know of. That we know of until 1929 when he killed an eight-year-old girl named Rosa. And he tried to set fire to her body. Rash of other attacks were happening. A lot of women were being choked to the point of passing out. And then might wake up in a house that had been set fire to. But they weren't dying. So the German newspapers began referencing monsters. And in 1929, he killed two foster sisters at a fair. And they were five and 14. And then he killed another five-year-old that same year. And sent a map to the newspapers saying where the body could be found. So kind of cribbing from Jack the Ripper a little there, interacting with the newspapers that way. And they did find her exactly where the map said she would be. And she'd been stabbed 35 times. But then an interesting turn of events occurred. There was a woman named Maria Budlick. She was very nervous because she was moving around Hanover at night, alone. And this man comes out and he's like, let me show you a shortcut through this... She was moving through Dusseldorf alone, on her own, at night. And so a very kind man came out and offered to show her a shortcut to a boarding house. It was just through this dark park. And she got very nervous because she knew that there was a man moving around killing women. And so she begs off and she's trying to kind of get away from him. And this knight in shining armor comes out and he shoes the other man away. He can tell that that man was making her nervous. And then he introduces himself to her as Peter Curtin. A violent attack follows. And she doesn't go to the police with it because there's such a stigma associated with being a rape victim at this time. But she writes a friend of hers about what happened. And the letter is accidentally sent to the wrong woman who opens it, not realizing it's not for her, and reads it and takes it to the police. And then the police go and find Maria And she's able to point out where he lives, but she's too afraid to actually confront him. But Peter knows the jig is up. So he goes to his wife, and he tells her that he is the vampire. What was her response? Okay. (laughs) Like, really? She's like, okay. That's good. 
She says, you should kill yourself. Really? Yeah. She's I like, think that's an appropriate response. You should kill yourself and I'll kill myself too, she tells him. And he's like, no, no, no. Just turn me in and then you can have the reward money. And she's like, better plan. So he got turned in. So why is he the vampire? Why is he the Dusseldorf vampire? Well, after his wife turned him in, he confessed to all of his crimes in great detail and seemed to really enjoy it. And he additionally went on to tell a prison psychiatrist that he became sexually aroused by drinking the blood of his helpless victims. Curtin claimed to have ingested so much blood after one murder that he became physically ill. Also, he cited the event that kind of rekindled his interest in killing in 29 as this time he was walking around and he saw a gorgeous swan. And so he went to the swan and lopped its head off and then drank blood from its neck while it was still warm. So he definitely fits with the idea of sexual arousement related to blood drinking. But you know, some people say that he kind of just made that part up. That he was just saying that to use as an insanity defense. Well, that didn't work out so well for him. Yeah, they're not finding these victims like completely drained of blood. They're not finding like bite marks in their neck. You know, that that was assigned to him by the media, you know, that vampire moniker, and maybe he just went with it. Yeah, I think maybe he was like, I can use this to my advantage, just like he did with the reward money. Oh, yeah, he's very manipulative. So, I don't know. I, don't, I, I think, think he's impressed. more of just a traditional uh, psychopath. Good old sexual Sarah sadist. Yeah. yeah, like I, I kind of feel like maybe the swan thing is so gothic and poetic, though. Like, I want it to fit. But it almost sounds made up. Yeah. So, I've got another vampire for you. You do? The London vampire. Oh, like Dracula made it. Yes. So, this is John George Hay, and he was an English serial killer. In the 1940s, he was also known as the acid bath murderer. So very like Breaking Bad. Was he the first person to be caught with acid? I think he probably was. This I'm is sure. he's pioneering a new technology. Oh, good. So he was eventually convicted of murder of six people. He would beat them to death or shoot them, and then dissolve their corpses in sulfuric acid before forging papers to be able to sell the victim's possessions and collect substantial sums of money, like their pension checks and things like that. One, he sounds like a good old-fashioned bluebeard to me. There were some widows that he did trick into this. Two, he practiced his acid bathery on mice, like, to make sure it worked. Right. He had this, like... Weird notion that if the body couldn't be found, he couldn't be convicted. Okay, he is English, so let's just assume. Very literal. He took it very literally that there had to be a body of evidence. Yes. Okay. (laughs) And so he did plead insanity. Yeah. He claimed that he drunk the blood of his victims. He confessed to having dreams dominated by blood as a young boy. So it fits in. Mm Mm-hmm. And when he was involved in a car crash in March 1944... His dreams returned to him. I saw before me a forest of crucifixes. Oh my. Which gradually turned into trees. At first there appeared to be dew or rain dripping from the branches. But as I approached, I realized it was blood. That's not funny. The whole forest began to writhe and the trees, dark and erect, to ooze blood. A man went from each tree catching the blood. And when the cup was full, he approached me. Drink, he said, but I was unable to move. Sounds like he was watching Coppola's (laughs) Dracula. 
Maybe he had a chrono visor. Absolutely. That sounds like some penny dreadful bullshit. Yeah, it sounds like he was reading a little too much stuff. But, you know, when they asked a psychiatrist if he felt that he did, he said, I think it's pretty certain he did. He drank the blood, you mean? Yes. I think it's pretty certain that he did. So, he was hunk on April 10th, 1949. Okay, so shortly before the Gorbals incident. Right, and, you know, I feel like an incident that happened around this really plays home that this guy was not all there in the head. Okay. Light under the hat. So okay. Before he was to be hung, he asked one of the prison guards if they could have a trial run of his hanging. How did he think so that So everything would run smoothly. I'm not sure. So that really plays in, of all of the ones we talked about, the most with this. I mean, he drank the blood, most likely. I think if he did, it was because it was there. I think he was going to kill them anyway to get their money. And that was the motivation. Yeah, so like... The, the motivation is wrong. He didn't sincerely believe he was a vampire. Right. He was given that title. But hey, these have all been in Europe. Woohoo, United States. That was a little premature, darling. Oh, I thought we were done. No, I, I have I have a real Renfeld for you, bub. Is it in the United States? It is. Damn it. I know. It's in California. Oh, that's like a different republic. <laughs> There's bears, whatever. So, forensic psychiatrist Ronald Markman who is in charge of his psychiatric expert report, wrote of this killer, while in prison, he repeatedly asked for fresh blood, human or otherwise, to drink for sustenance. So he needed the blood to survive. He did. Who is this? His name is Robert Chase. He was born in 1950. And he killed six people in the span of a month. Oh, he was busy. He was. All of his murders took place between December... 1977 and January 1978 in Sacramento. And that's why he's called the Sacramento Vampire. Man, everyone's so creative in naming the vampires. He was also called Dracula. So he believed that he had to drink blood and eat internal organs to prevent the Nazis from turning his blood into powder via poison they had planted beneath his soap dish. Oh, so he was in his right mind. Yes, a very clear thinker. As a teenager, he developed a tendency to mutilate animals and start fires. He was impotent. He went and saw a psychiatrist during his teen years because he was suffering from erectile dysfunction. And they told him that it probably had to do with a lot of repressed anger. And in later analysis, people would decide that it was because he had such an intense connection to the paraphilias associated with blood and necrophilia and animal mutilation. Okay, so he's definitely fitting in. Yes. And when he was young, he believed that his mother was trying to murder him using poison. Interestingly, his mother also thought that her husband was trying to poison her. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And he began to capture and kill animals and eat them raw. He would put their entrails in a blender and made animal entrail smoothies. Paleo. And he did this because he thought that ingesting this would keep his heart from shrinking. Because if it got too small, he would die. In 1975, he was put in a mental hospital because he had injected rabbit's blood into his veins and got blood poisoning. Yes, that is not recommended. (laughs) So during his stint at the mental hospital, some nurses came down his hall and found him with blood smeared around his mouth. And they discovered that he'd reached out the window and captured two birds, snapped their necks, and sucked their blood out. 
Okay, so not only does that fit with the clinical vampirism of Zoophagia, it also fits with the story of Reinfeld and Dracula, where he was in the insane asylum, capturing insects and feeding off their blood for sustenance. But then the staff began calling him Dracula. He was released in 1976, and his mother decided he didn't need his meds. Good decision. Yeah, and then she decided that he could live on his own. Such a good mother. She was. So he kept killing and eating small wild animals and occasionally neighbor's pets. Only occasionally. Only occasionally. Sweetheart, have you seen Fido? (laughs) Have you seen Fluffy? You should ask the neighbors. Go knock. Don't knock. It's not worth it. He became really fascinated with the hillside stranglers who were active at this time. And he decided that whatever UFO Nazi conspiracy was going on with him was also affecting the hillside strangler. Logically. Yeah, so that must be why he's killing people. And at this time, he dropped down to 145 pounds, which is remarkable because he was 5'11". So basically skin and bones. And then one day in 1977, Chase rang his mother's doorbell. And shoved a dead cat in her face, then threw the cat on the ground, knelt down, ripped its stomach open with his bare hands, and stuck his hands inside the cat. And then he smeared the cat blood all over his face. His mother went back inside the house and never said anything to anybody. She was just like, okay, (laughs) and closed the door. Okay, Richie, thanks. Back to my soaps. (laughs) Those soaps are Nazi soaps. And then, on August 3rd, 1977, the Nevada State Police discovered his Ford Ranchero in a sand drift near a lake in Nevada. Inside, there were two rifles, a pile of clothes, a bucket full of blood, and a cow liver. So they started looking for Chase. And they're, like, scanning the desert horizon with their binoculars, and suddenly they see him. And he is naked screaming, soaked from head to toe in blood. And when they questioned him, he claimed the blood was his own, said it leaked out through his flesh. Oops. And so then, on December 29th, 1977, he committed his first murder. Because there haven't been any warning signs. There were no chances for intervention. You understand, this came out of nowhere. No one could have seen it coming. All right, little Richie, go play with your animals. Mommy's busy. Mommy loves you. Okay, good job. Can you um, run down the store and get me some palm malls? Can you pick up some soap? There's something wrong with a blender. Like, this just like doesn't make sense, but I mean, he is a disorganized killer. But his first shooting, or his first murder, was a drive-by shooting. Yeah, it doesn't fit anything. It's yeah. random. Right, so he drove by, shot a man who was helping his wife with groceries, and drove off. And then he doesn't do anything until sometime in January... 1978, a couple weeks later, and he starts complaining that his head keeps changing shape and that someone stole his pulmonary artery. Oh, I hate when that happens. I know. It makes things so hard. Like oxygenating blood. Yeah. It was tough for him. He had a hard row. So on January 11th, he asked a neighbor for a cigarette, and she was like, here, have a cigarette. And then he forcibly restrained her and demanded she give him the whole pack. As you do. Yeah, but but, but she did, so she made it and then on the 21st of january he went and tried some doors actually see if they were open Mm -hmm. he would later tell detectives that he took locked doors as a sign that he was not welcome 
True. But unlocked doors were an invitation to come inside. Not true. You well, have, it is. You have to be invited in. Doesn't he know the rules? But he thought the unlocked door was the invitation. Oh, so he really followed the rules. Mm-hmm. So while wandering around, he encountered this girl that he'd gone to high school with named Nancy Holden. And he attempted to get a ride from her. But he looked like death warmed over and she had no interest in giving him a ride anywhere. Now, that same night, he broke into the home of a married couple. He found a drawer that had infant's clothing in it, and he peed in it. Logically. And then he pooped in the kid's bed. Logically. And then the couple came back that lived there, and they found him in the house, and the guy chased him out. So then he kept trying to enter houses, and then he came to the home of the Wallens. And the guy, David, was out at work, and Teresa was taking out the garbage. So the door was unlocked. She was in the middle of like gathering everything up and going back and forth. And he went in and he murdered her. He killed her by shooting her in the head. And then he committed acts of necrophilia and stabbed her repeatedly with a butcher knife, took several of her internal organs and then used a bucket to collect her blood and then went in the bathroom and bathed in it. That's a new twist. And he used an empty yogurt container as a drinking glass. A few days later, he commits the mass murder that will eventually be his undoing. He finds the final four victims in a house together. He shoots all the male people in the head. So there's a six-year-old, a 22-month-old, and a 51-year-old man. So he kills them all. And then he goes in and finds a woman named Evelyn in the bathtub. He shoots her while she's in the bath and then drags her body out and brings it back to the bedroom and they find evidence of multiple sexual assaults, but they think they were all carried out post-mortem. And he also slices the back of her neck and drinks blood and he cuts her body in very strategic places and drains all of her blood into buckets and he evidently ate some of the kid's brains while he was there. But then a six-year-old girl knocks on the door. Because she had a play date with a six-year-old boy who lived in the house. And it startles him. So he absconds with the body of the 22-month-old boy, stealing the man's car. And he got his keys and wallet. Like, that is the only thing he's done in all of this that gives any indication that he is still in the realm of reality to me. Like, taking that man's keys and wallet. I mean, like, the idea of escape is always there. It's like one of our most primal instincts. Right, but I would think... Like, the idea that he has keys, these keys must go to a car, and, like, knowing which car it is, like, the ability to reason that out, and even to drive at this point, to me, is just astounding. Because everything else is so fucking bananas. So, he does take the body back to his place, along with some of the blood he's harvested, along with internal organs from Evelyn. He eats the internal organs, he makes smoothies... And then he eventually disposes of the corpse in a nearby churchyard. Now, this scene is one of the most horrific crime scenes that anyone will ever come across. It's devastatingly brutal. So they bring in people to profile him, which is so new at this time. It's in its infancy, right? So Robert Ressler and Russ Vorpical were called in, and they were the FBI. And they compiled a profile of the killer and determined that the killer would be tall malnourished, a loner, physically unclean, and that he would continue to kill until he was caught. Do you remember who Nancy Holden is? 
Yeah, it's the his ex-classmate that was, he was creeping on. Yeah, he tried to get a ride from her, and she was like, eh, I don't know about that, Richard. I talked to you, like, once in biology class, really? Yeah, like, don't friend me on Facebook. She hears this profile on the news, and she goes, that sounds like Richard Chase. And so do you know what she does, because she has fucking ovaries of steel? She calls the cops. She calls it in. And she's like, I know who this is. You need to check him out. And you know what? She was right. She acted on instinct, and she was right. They go to his apartment, and they're like, hey, can we talk to you? And he's like, "Mm mm-mm. So they, like, go and wait in the hall. And then they see him coming out of his door in, like, a bloody parka with a bloody box and bloody shoes. And they're like, that's reasonable cause. Hmm. I think we can go in there. Yeah, so they arrest him. And then they go in and find the gun, the twenty-two that was used... And all the murders, they're like, hey, there's blood all over the place. And he's like, yeah, I killed some dogs. Which, true. Well, hey, better than killing people. But yeah. I still don't condone killing dogs. I don't either. But yeah, that's true. But you also- Sometimes I want to kill our dog. But, you know. That's different. He has years of bad credit. And then they searched his person and they found that he was carrying Dan Meredith, the man who had been murdered in the last quadruple homicide, his wallet. So they're like, hmm, we see a link. And then they perform a detailed search of his apartment. They found all the walls, floor, ceiling, refrigerator, and all of Chase's eating and drinking utensils were soaked with blood. On the counter, there was a blender that Chase had used to make his smoothies, and it was caked in coagulated blood. Inside the refrigerator, they found several animal body parts wrapped in aluminum foil, brains in a Tupperware, pieces of a body wrapped in saran wrap, and several of... Evelyn Moreau's and Teresa Wallen's internal organs. On another counter, they found several pet collars. Aww. Um, and on his kitchen table, they found diagrams depicting various aspects of human biology. He's trying to figure out where his pulmonary artery went. I really do think it was like bad operation, like the game. He was found competent to stand trial, not legally insane. Bullshit. I, I'm kind of okay with them hanging him or whatever. Oh, it was going to be gas chamber. Like, how can you say that this person's sane? Maybe the keys and wallet were a big component. Oh, well, maybe so. I'll take being right. I'm just going to agree with you from now on. Okay. So other prisoners were really afraid of him. Like, so afraid of him that they didn't want to be the one to kill him. Because they didn't know what kind of weird hoodoo shit he had going on. They probably thought he was a real vampire. They were like, dude, you should kill yourself. That would be the greatest thing. If you could just kill yourself, that would be awesome. So he's... Completely and continuously urged to kill himself while he was in prison. Wrestler is coming to do forensic interviews, the profiler, and get information about how this not insane person committed these murders. So he asked Wrestler if he can get him access to a radar gun with which he could apprehend the Nazi UFOs so that the Nazis could stand trial for these murders. He also handed Wrestler a large amount of macaroni and cheese, which he'd been hoarding in his pants pocket, believing the prison officials were in league with the Nazis and they were trying to kill him too. Thanks. Thanks for your pants macaroni. It could be so much worse. It could be. Thanks for the bloody bird you caught. (laughs) Oh, thank you. You're a cat now. (laughs) He did eventually kill himself on the 26th of December of 1980. He'd been hoarding the antidepressants that the prison psychiatrist prescribed, and he took them all at once, and he died in his cell. 
So I can definitely see how he would fit in with that non-official definition of clinical vampirism and also fit in, of course, with so many other things such as schizophrenia. Dude. Paranoid schizophrenia. Dude. Uh, sociopathy. Dude. No, I think he's too delusional to have any self-concept. That's a really good argument. This is the craziest person I've ever read about. Like, this is the most well-documented case of crazy I have ever heard. I don't think it'd be, you know, far stretched to say that he fits in with that definition. No, I mean, like, he's he thinks that he has to have blood from animals and people in order to survive. He really does believe it. So the idea... The belief that someone could be stalking around with metal teeth or otherwise looking to take children or others and drink their blood. Is that just a story? Yeah, it's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen.